Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Well, hello, Cove Church. My name is Winston, and some of you already may know me, but if you don't, it may be because I'm often lurking back here in the shadows with the band. Uh, And that's part of my role here at the church is helping to oversee the worship ministry. And I get to do that with an amazing group of leaders, one of which is my wife, Stephanie, who many of you probably know because she's up here a lot of the time leading you in worship. And that's actually how I met her too. We've been married going on six years. We're gonna have our sixth wedding anniversary next month. But it all started back actually here in this very room. In fact, I can pinpoint the exact place on stage where I knew I felt something for Stephanie. Um, It goes like this. I was standing here on stage. I think I'd maybe just met her, never even really heard her sing. The intro to the song starts. She picks up the mic. And as soon as she starts singing, um, oh, It was like I felt the pierce of Cupid's arrow. Wow. Um, So my my feelings for Stephanie started all the way back then, but it took a few years before we would even start dating. Um, But in the meantime, I longed, pined even, um, for who would soon be my wife. Now, I think we can all resonate with this a little bit, right? We've all felt what it is to long for something deeply. And even if we're not married or have never even been in love, I think we've all felt a sense of longing that goes deeper than the desires that just come and go day by day. So my wife and I, we were watching old sitcoms. We love to do that. Seinfeld, Uh, is one of my favorites. And this scene came on. And as I was watching it, I just knew I had to share it with you today. Take a look. Hi. Are you ready to order? Yeah. No, no, not yet. Not yet. Excuse excuse me. Do you ever yearn? Yearn? Do I yearn? (laughs) I yearn. You yearn. Oh, yes. Yes, I yearn. Often I, I sit and yearn. Have you yearned? No. Well, not recently. I craved. I crave all the time. Constant craving. But I haven't yearned. Now, that one always makes me laugh. Uh, and I love how the subtle use of words in it strike at something deep in the human experience. The bald guy in that clip, George, craves all the time, but he's just now waking up to the fact that maybe there's more. And to find it, he is going to have to yearn. There's something true about this, right? I mean, everybody goes through life craving a great many different things. There's the little cravings I get late at night for fourth meal, Taco Bell. Um, There's the deeper ones like, man, I've always thought it would be cool to write a book. And then there's stuff that goes even deeper, like 
you've always wanted to have kids or maybe there's something about you that you don't like and you want to change it. Uh, these feelings are common to us all and they can go really, really deep. But sometimes they're good and true and God-given and sometimes they aren't. But regardless, even a really deep feeling that you have about something may still just be a craving. And I wanna go deeper than a craving today. I wanna get down to the level of our yearning. So while we have our own set of unique cravings to us, we all have the same yearning. I believe that. And we may not even know what it is because we tend to go through life, you know, kind of more in touch with the surface level a lot of times with our cravings and our day-to-day -day desires. But every single one of us has the very same yearning. And the only way to quench that is to get a taste of it. So what is the deepest yearning that we all have in common? If you're Googling the answer right now, good luck with that. Um, but my proposal to you today is that our yearning is for Jesus and that yearning is quenched when we worship him. Now, this is a big statement, but let's keep it in the back of our mind for a moment because I need to clarify what I mean when I say the word worship. Through this message series, we've been discovering that worship doesn't just mean the 20 minutes of singing that we do on the weekend. In fact, worship is so much bigger and encompasses way more than a song. In fact, worship happens when we set something as so high and above every other thing. It's so important to us that we give our whole life to it. So to worship God in that way can't just happen in a song. Worship goes far beyond any single activity do we do because it is in every activity we do. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12 that our spiritual worship is to be a living sacrifice. Well, what does that mean? He also says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is worship and it's totalizing. When it's got God's imprint on it, it's in every thought and action we do. Yet, I think we need to acknowledge that even though worship is expressed in how we live our lives that way, it also happens in a special way in gatherings like this and in the privacy of our own hearts. I mean, we don't round you all up on the weekend to sing songs just because it's our tradition. It's actually how God wants it. Take Psalm 95, which says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And what's more, when we seek his presence this way, to recognize him for who he is and to proclaim what he's done, and receive the life he freely offers. We're doing a whole lot more than checking off a list of God-given instructions. We're bringing into the here 
And now, the eternal picture of where our whole life of worship is going. Take the very last chapter of Revelation. The Apostle John is giving us a final vision of eternity. And he says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. End scene, roll credits. This is where it's all headed. All God's servants basking in his presence, receiving the water of life and the deep yearning of the world finds its fulfillment once and for all. Worship can be a foretaste of this. It takes on this special dimension when we cease our usual activity to turn all our awareness to the presence of God. Take a note from the Psalms. 46 says, be still and know that I am God. It's in the stillness of our hearts where we create a sacred space to know the one we long for. Or in the famous words of St. Augustine, you have formed us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. This is the kind of encounter where our thirsty, yearning hearts touch eternity. So take just that much so far. If our worship is giving our whole life to God, but it occurs in a unique way when we seek his presence, and if worship is to pause, to seek that presence, a presence that, like I've said, can quench our deepest yearning, then why am I so thirsty right now? Let's be real. As great as all that sounds, and as much as scripture uh, that I might use to try and back it up, if we're honest, would we say that our experience of seeking God in his word or in prayer or singing at church, for that matter, do they always feel like I'm drinking deep drams of the river of life? If I'm honest with you, much of the time I show up here parched and I leave pretty parched, dry. Even if Jesus is in fact what we most yearn for, my religious activities can seem to do very little to satisfy my inner longings. In fact, sometimes it's quite the opposite. Let me share with you a story. Uh, this is my very first memory of church. I can't go back any earlier than this. I uh, am probably six years old. My parents have just moved from Eugene to the Oregon coast and we show up at this church. We're probably just visiting at this point, okay? And the pastor is up front and he says, I'd like to have all the children come forward. And my father gives me a nudge and he's like, go on son. And, uh, and I'm shy and I'm thinking, no way Jose, I do not wanna go down there. But then like, so a quiet, awkward sort of back and forth ensues in the pew. And pretty soon my dad's, you know, put his foot down. And in his British accent, he says, you bloomin' get down there. So um, 
I've lost. And so I walk down there and I get in place. I'm, there's like, I don't know, 15 kids. And they begin this song and they probably practice it for months. They know all the words. There's hand signals and everything. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And the choir director is probably like, who's this kid? And uh, when it gets over, I slink back to my seat. And my dad's probably laughing on the inside. I don't know. Um, but I was not laughing. Um, you might say that was a real rough way to begin life as a worshiper. Um, and honestly, it, it, it didn't get much better for me for a very long time. And there are still days when I struggle to pray and to worship. Days where I know up here that Jesus is the object of my yearning, but I don't really know it down here. And there are still days when I can sing my way through a whole church service, but my head and my heart are somewhere else entirely. When our hearts are prone to wander anywhere but towards Jesus, what then? In the fourth chapter of John's gospel, we have a story of a woman at the well. The story begins with Jesus traveling through Samaria on his way back to Galilee. Now, we may know that Samaritans and Jews don't like each other very much. Um, but Jesus, doing what no other Jew would care to do, cuts straight through Samaria. And there's this place called Jacob's Well. When a Samaritan woman is going up to fetch water there, she finds Jesus already waiting for her. And for the purposes of this story, as we read through John 4, know that you and I were the Samaritan woman. So I invite you to put yourself in her place. Having set the stage, let's read what happens. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. We have a woman coming alone to this well in the heat of the day to draw water and she finds Jesus but let's face it, we know who Jesus is, but I can guarantee that she didn't come to this well thinking this guy is going to be the object of her greatest yearnings. It's high noon, blistering hot, and she's thirsty. I'd guess she just wants to fill her jars and get out of there. Like us, she's got an agenda to keep, but this guy is slowing her down and giving her some crazy line about living water. He's peddling something 
too fantastic for her to take seriously. It's something that he clearly can't have, nor could she ever have it. Eternal life welling up within herself. Clearly she, just like everyone else, is bound to life's laws, the patterns and cycles of need that doom us to repeat the same thing day after day after day. We're filling jars that just are gonna keep going empty. But here she is, and here we are too. Every time we approach what we think we want most, there is Jesus telling us he has what we need. Whether we're ready to believe him or not, Jesus positions himself right there at the place we turn to fill our emptiness. And it's there that we have a choice because he gives himself as the alternative. And every time we come to Jesus in worship, we're met with a confrontation like this. As convenient as it may be for us to cease our busyness and be with him, once we do that, our first decision is then to believe that he actually has what he's offering and that we can have it too. Listen, if you know Jesus, if you've set aside time to pray to him and you show up to church and you're singing these songs, in some sense, you've made it. I mean, you're at the well because Jesus is here with you. In fact, he says, where two or more are gathered, there I am among them. But until we believe in our heart that he has got living water on tap, then we haven't truly tasted what we long for. We may as well be standing at the banks of the river of life and we're only getting our toes wet. Hear this Cove Church. If you want to taste living water, if you want to satisfy the deepest need of your heart, it's offered freely, but you've got to really want it. You've got to yearn for it. Jeremiah says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Some of us have gotten really good at doing all the Jesus-like activities. We can dance and sing and serve and even preach around the well. But if we were to examine our list of loves, Jesus is nowhere to be found. He's at the bottom of the pile. We know what he offers, but we're still more interested in other things. If I'm real with you, my history as a worshiper could almost be summed up in a thought like that. Um, if we go back to my story, I'm six years old and I just forged a very strong link in my subconscious between singing in church and public humiliation. <laughs> um, and so for the next 10 years, 10 years, I did not sing. I didn't open my mouth, not a peep. Maybe not even to say happy birthday, right? My mother testifies to this day that I never heard him sing. I refused to do it. It was maybe a nervous reaction at first to my you know, experience, but then on it kind of became my identity. I'm not somebody who sings. And then because I'm shy and don't wanna draw attention to that, the last thing I wanna do is start singing. Even if it started to well up in my heart, I wouldn't do it because then people would look and go, oh, look, 
He's singing now. And I didn't want that. <laughs> I mean, it all started to change, though, um, right about 16, but not for the reasons you might expect. I was in high school. I was uh, at a youth retreat with my youth group, and we're going to these uh, general sessions, they called them, where we would you know, sing worship, and then we'd go back to our rooms and talk. And uh, my youth leader said something like, how come you guys aren't singing, you know? Um, and then this girl, <laughs> this girl uh, that I had a crush on for a long time, she was the pastor's daughter, her name was Kelsey, uh, and uh, she said something like, you know, it's hot when guys sing. And it was like, bing, <laughs> the light went on. And I thought, okay, here's my, here's my reason to start singing now. Um, and so, we go back out into the worship sessions and I'm like, shout to the Lord or whatever song we were singing at the time back then. Uh, and I'm thinking, man, I hope she hears me singing. I hope this is hot. Um, well, I, I guess the singing wasn't hot enough because we never got together. Uh, and that's a good thing. Um, but that's, you know, that's where I was in my teenage years. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, genuinely I was developing a relationship with Jesus but it did stay pretty surface level. And I don't know if I really thought about Jesus much of the time. I don't know if I really wanted him. And if he wanted to talk to me, to offer me a drink for the dryness in my heart, I was mostly too distracted to listen. It's a little uncomfortable for me to say, uh, but I have to admit that this is still where I find myself much of the time. Um, you know, the reasons are a little different now, um, and I've got a lot of other cravings and distractions uh, that I wrestle with. Um, but if you can relate to me in any of this, take heart. Remember that you're already at the well, and Jesus is here waiting for you. And he knows you're walking in here with your head in a hundred different places. You're maybe hoping to fill your jars with things like better relationships, more financial security. Maybe you wish the songs were better, uh, or maybe the preaching made more sense. Um, or maybe it's just lunch that's on your mind, but some of those things are good things to crave. Uh, but if Jesus is not at the center of that all, then you'll be coming back next week with another empty jar. Wherever the emptiness is, know that he's quietly meeting you right there. And he's asking that you just believe him and you choose him long enough to let him sort through it all. Because he's going to show you the difference between what you crave and what you yearn. And know this, when you cease your busyness to sit with Jesus, the real business is about to begin. It's my pastoral quip for the day. Um, the Samaritan woman, um, where she's at in this, is where we find ourselves today. Uh, and by the grace of God, she listens to Jesus and she opens up to him if only slightly. She says, give me this water. His reply catches her a little off guard. Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Um, Jesus is far more than a prophet, but like one, he sees things for what they are and he knows what's happening under the surface. The woman approaches the well in the heat of the day, thirsty, unlike the others who tend to go together when it's a lot cooler, she comes alone. And she carries with her a lot more than her empty jars and a thirst for water. The chain of cravings that she brings with herself is her shame that she's caught in because she is an adulteress. And her ongoing fidelity has made her an outcast. Being rejected by her community has made things really hard, of course. But over the years, it's just become a normal part of her life. Her I have no husband shows Jesus how quick she is to hide from her sins. Like she's saying, we don't need to pry into any of that, do we? And it also shows how callous she has become towards how she's chosen to live. Hey, this is just the way it is for me. All her misdirected yearnings, her sin, has run its course through the years of her life and buried itself so far down that it sits in a place in her soul deeper than her very need for water. Why would Jesus bring this up in the moment? Is he trying to be cruel? If he is so loving, why would he choose to throw this in front of her face? Well, we find ourselves caught in a moment like this too. And in worship, this is inevitable. When we draw near to the presence of Jesus, we begin to see him clearly and realize that he is actually what we yearn for. So in that moment, we can't help but see ourselves with the same clarity. Like the apostle John, the prophet Isaiah was also given a vision of heaven. And in it, he stands before the throne of God and his only response is, woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We will face our infirmities when we come before the holiness of God. In a way, maybe you found yourself there today as well. In one moment, you're thinking, man, how great Jesus is. He saved me and he's got a great plan for my life. And then the mood shifts in the song. You find yourself singing things like, oh, my sin and shame. Or I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made. The equation is simple. The more you begin to taste the living water of Jesus, the more you recognize the bitterness of what you've been drinking your whole life. And none of this is cruel. But it's what must take place because it's this kind of catharsis that we need to pass through as the presence of God calls all that we are and all that we've done to sink into the loving, healing arms of Jesus and to be washed clean in his living water. And that is what 
our heavy burdened souls today yearn most for. Even if the woman doesn't realize all this yet, this is what Jesus invites her to step into. In this moment, she recognizes that Jesus is seeing into her and allowing her to face what she's tried to hide or numb herself to. And as we read on, her reply might puzzle us, but what she is doing is opening up the conversation so that Jesus can prove to her and to us who he is and what he brings with him. She replies to Jesus, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. There's a lot in this passage, but one thing is for certain. Jesus' answer changes everything for her. She hears that Jesus is the Christ and he's come to save her. And what he brings for her is even more incredible than what she could have ever guessed. The old cultic systems that were in place for more than a thousand years, those are coming to an end. The temple rituals that they leaned on day by day, they're no longer needed to make God accessible to man. For God, as in John 1, has become flesh and now dwelt among us. This is what worship in spirit and truth is. To worship in truth means to worship by way of the one who is truth. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To worship in spirit is to have Jesus sending his spirit into your heart to build the temple and the very presence of God within. The presence of God is before you now in Jesus. And if you desire it, he will fill your heart with it and all your longing will be an added end. In Revelation, John tells us of what will happen when the presence of God finally floods into the hearts of everyone. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things passed away. So here at the well, at the same moment in time that we see the old cycles of religion begin to dismantle, we see the old cycles of sin and even death begin to dissolve. And it's showing us this truth. Jesus is the eternal answer to our yearning. For in him, we have the presence of God. If we believe in him and we choose him, 
He will shed that presence like living water into your heart, as broken as you are, to enliven your spirit, making all things new and welling up to eternal life. That's the promise. And our yearning is the proof that that is to come. Reading the rest of this chapter, I don't know that the woman realized all this, but we do know that in the presence of the one who is to be her savior, she knew she had found something that made all her cravings pale in comparison. And she realized that all the baggage she had carried with her, it didn't weigh her down anymore. So she runs from that place, leaving her empty jars behind. Do we think that's a coincidence? She's tasted the water of life. And when you taste that, you don't have a taste for anything else. She heads straight back into town. She goes right up to the people that mocked and despised her. But she's not hiding. In fact, she testifies to her brokenness like it's a celebration of who Jesus is. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Man, I want to celebrate with her because for you and for me, the search is over. When you start to believe it, you start to feel it too. It took me a lot longer than I would have liked, but it started to happen. What I thought I craved is turning out to be just dead weight. Jesus is telling me all I ever did, all I ever wanted, and he's cutting the strings that tie me down. And let me tell you, it feels good. Because it's not money I need or vacation time. It's not respect or social status. That's not what I'm yearning for. It's not in being seen or being hidden. It's not in my relationships, not even the best ones. It's not likes or dislikes. It's not in the smiles I get when I walk through these doors. I don't need to find the best preaching in town or the friendliest church in town. And it's not in the feeling that one song gave me that one time. I don't look for it up here anymore. These empty jars I came with, they're useless to me because what I need, I already have in Jesus and I'm finding him and choosing him here in the hidden depths of my heart. It's called spirit and truth worship. And that's how I'm going to taste what I'm yearning for. The woman at the well leaves us with the call to come. And this call is one that echoes through eternity. In Revelation, at the end, we hear the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. It comes at no cost, if only we would desire it. And in light of all the other things that I desire, I just wish that I would learn to desire Jesus more. And that's how I'd like to end this. As much as I've made a point to say that we don't need anyone or anything other than Jesus to satisfy our longing, I, I want to acknowledge and give credit to how important we can be to each other to learn to long for him. I've been in church more hours than I can count. And the folks I do life with in this place, all of you, 
You've taught me more about loving Jesus than anything else. And when my wandering heart doesn't seek him, I can see it on other faces. I see it on your faces. And when I can say that I have tasted of the water of life, I pray that you can see it on mine so that you begin to desire it too. I wanna end with a song. Uh, it's a song that came out in college as I was learning to want Jesus a little bit more. And when I saw other people around me, other musicians singing songs, I, I could see what was in their heart and that they longed for Jesus. And I wanted that too. And so this song is just a prayer. It's just saying, I wanna yearn. So we'll end with that. Burn with passion over you. 
Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com, or on all social media platforms at Cove Church PNW. We'll see you next time.